This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, progressive talk radio host and author Tom Hartman. He joins us to talk about his new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. He explores the many connections between guns and our country's history with the Native American genocide, slavery, and even neoliberal economic policy. We also get his thoughts on this particularly urgent moment in our country's history and about how we as progressives can contextualize what's happening. We've been to Helen back. And it seems that we always bounce back. And every time we bounce back, particularly after the major turning points, you know, the the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Great Depression, after every one of these major turning points, it seems like we bounce back in a way that's more progressive, that we are continuously moving forward. We also hear from former 41st LD Representative Marcy Maxwell on her run for mayor of the city of Renton. That's all ahead. So stay with us. My guest, Tom Hartman, is the host of the daily three-hour syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, which is heard and seen all over the country and the world. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of 24 books, including his most recent, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. And he will be appearing at Town Hall in Seattle on Sunday, June 23rd to discuss it. Tom Hartman, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you, Stephen. So, you know, you do a three-hour show every day, as I say. Uh, You are the author of two dozen books. Where do you find the time to write all of these books? This show takes me uh, all week to do one show, so. Wow. Um, Well, I really honor the the craft and and effort that you're putting into the show. I'm not sure that everything I turn out is craftsman quality, but, but which is not to say it's not quality, but the reason I get up at five in the morning and well, we start show prep at five in the morning and we do that until around eight at eight o'clock. I'm in the studio uh, pre-recording whatever's necessary and marking up the, the show for the day. We're on the air live from nine till noon. Um, I get off the air, I come home, have lunch, and then from one o'clock until six o'clock, I write wow. every afternoon for five hours. And then at six, we watch Rachel Maddow. And then at seven, we go to bed. Well, that part looks like my day. So (laughs) (laughs) I just have to get the one to 6 p.m. writing regimen in and I'll I'll be just like you. So uh, anyway, so in your new book, you lay out the magnitude of the gun problem that we have here in the United States. Um, You also talk about the history of guns in this country, how gun culture developed. So let's start there. You say that white Europeans probably wouldn't have been able to take this continent from the native population if it weren't for guns. So talk about that. Well, guns were were the uh, the, the breakthrough revolutionary disruptive technology of, well, they, they extended over a period of several hundreds of years, but, but certainly in terms of confronting indigenous people and aboriginal people, whether it was um, here in North America or whether it was in South America, whether it was in Africa uh, in the colonial period, whether it was in Australia, guns uh, have been that that technology and they, they enabled that. We we experienced the greatest, largest genocide in the history of the world here in North America. It was the official policy of the British East India Company and the British government for 200 years to exterminate Native Americans, to practice genocide against them. And then it became the official policy of the U.S. government. And I would say in some ways it still is. Um, just yesterday, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, just came out and officially proclaimed that California recognized the Native American genocide in California, yeah. uh, which is a big deal. Yes, it is. Come out and say that and use that word. Um, but you know, a lot of them died from disease, but uh, a lot 
were killed with guns or were killed with things that were made possible by guns, like the Trail of Tears, and uh, which is one of many, many, many uh, Indian relocation efforts that ended up in the process killing lots and lots of Native Americans. And then moving forward on the timeline you present, uh, another factor in the development of our gun culture was the need to control slaves. And you show how that was directly related to the creation of the Second Amendment, specifically that it was worded in part to preserve slave patrol militias. Can you talk about that connection? Sure. The Second Amendment came about for two reasons. The first was that the the founders and the framers, and, and particularly the northern states, were very, very concerned about a standing army existing in the United States during times of peace. Uh, they did not want an army because they had seen country after country after country where the army rose up and overthrew the democratically elected government. We Recently, we've seen this in, in uh, Egypt with al-Sisi. We've seen it in Chile. It, you know, I mean, we've just story after story, right? So they wrote into the Constitution, into Article 1, Section 8, that Congress may not appropriate money for the Army for any period longer than two years. In other words, every two years, Congress has to decide, do we want to continue to have an Army? So then the question became, if we don't have an Army, what do we have? And the, what they envisioned was essentially what Switzerland has had for the last couple hundred years, which is a citizen militia, that where each canton or each state has its own militia, and they get called up as needed by the federal government. And so in the North, those militias were exactly that. They were state militias that, that uh, you know, would meet once a month or something. There was a draft. Every man, 17 to 47, had to be a member. You know, and they had, in fact, in the, in the Pennsylvania Constitution, it even said, and in, in deference to the Quakers, if you're religiously scrupulous, you know, against military service, then you don't have to participate in the militia, which was in the first draft of the Second Amendment. And in the South, the militias were not just the state militias that would protect the state's borders, but they were also the police departments, which is why in the South right now, if you are killed by a stranger, odds are one in three you're killed by a cop. And there were also the slave patrols. And every in Georgia, it was in state law, every month, every slave quarter in the entire state had to be inspected by a slave patroller to you know, make sure nobody was stockpiling weapons or getting ready to escape or whatever. In order to have slavery, you have to have a police state. In order to have a police state, you have to have a weaponry technology. In this case, it was guns. So when the Second Amendment was passed, it was to facilitate this idea of state militias replacing the standing army in the North. And in the South, that's a long story, it's in the book, Patrick Henry got up and said, wait a minute, you know, our militia is also our slave patrol, and the Constitution gives the president the right to call up the state militia and send them somewhere else. And if our slave patrol gets called up and sent off to Massachusetts, we white people in Virginia will get slaughtered. You know, he pointed out there's several hundred thousand uh, Africans, African-Americans in that state at that time, people of African ancestry. So he got all paranoid, and that's when the word for the, for the security of a free country was replaced with for the security of a free state to allow Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, the states that had slave patrols at the time, to maintain their slave patrols. And so the Second Amendment was essentially a compromise. Yeah, yeah, you could say so. Or you could say it was rewritten from its original anti-army purpose, pro-militia purpose, into something that also accommodated the slave patrols. You know, under pressure, Patrick Henry and George Basin threatened to blow up the uh, ratification. This was his speech was at the Virginia Ratifying Convention in, in uh, Richmond in 1789. And um, the, the Second Amendment, in its current form, was written to help preserve the institution of slavery in the South. 
You know, you also point out in the book that Jefferson wanted verbiage in the Bill of Rights prohibiting corporate monopolies. Uh, Things could have been quite different today if that had remained. Yes. And he was complaining about monopolies in commerce right up until the day he died or or the year he he died, certainly, in one of his last letters to Lafayette. Um, He was very concerned about that. When Madison sent him the Constitution, Jefferson was living in Paris in in the winter of 1787 uh, as our U.S. envoy to France. And Madison was his protege, and Madison sent him the Constitution and said, hey, boss, what do you think? And Jefferson said, well, I like these, you know, the three branches of government and splitting the bicameral legislature and all this kind of stuff. And he said, now I will tell you what I do not like. <laughs> and he said, I, I want an absolute bill of rights that says that the right of habeas corpus is absolute and the freedom of the press and freedom from religion. And then he says, and no standing armies and a ban on monopolies in commerce. And that's the one thing he didn't get. And uh, he was prescient. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, going back to the thread of the history with slavery, you devote a fair amount of the book to guns and race. And we know there's still very much a double standard in this country when it comes to blacks and whites possessing guns. And you talk about the example of then California Governor Ronald Reagan and the Black Panthers. Can you tell us about that story? Sure. California used to be an open carry state. And, you know, so anybody could walk around with a gun in their hand or on their hip as they chose, or even two or three guns. And one day Ronald Reagan was on the steps of the Capitol building in Sacramento. He was the governor. This was in the 1970s, maybe the late 60s. I'm not sure exactly when he was governor, and I'd have to go back and look at my own book to see the date. But <laughs> anyhow, he was, he, was, he was out there with a bunch of school children, you know, doing his, uh, his smarmy uh, Reagan thing. And... Um, he and Bobby Seale and a few of their friends pulled up in a couple of cars, jumped out, and had uh, shotguns and pistols. Uh, they weren't loaded, but nobody knew that. And they just, you know, ran right up the steps of the Capitol and into the Capitol building. And Reagan was like, holy crap, what's going on with this? And within a couple of weeks, uh, Representative Mulford, as I recall, um, had written a law, a Republican, white Republican legislator, banning open carry in California. And uh, it passed within a relatively short period of time. My recollection is like a month or two uh, of that incident happening. I mean, Reagan and all the white Republicans, well, probably some of the white Democrats too at that time, uh, in the California legislature were, you know, oh, yeah, open carry is just fine until black people start doing it. Right. You know, we, we put an end to that right away. And, and the double standard lives to this day. I mean, Philando Castile had a concealed carry permit, and he was pulled over by a police officer, and, and uh, this was all videotaped by his girlfriend. He says to the police officer, I have a concealed carry permit, and I have a concealed weapon. And the uh, cop says, let me see the permit. And he says, okay, I'm going to reach in my back pocket and get it in my wallet. He reaches to his back po- pocket, gets his wallet about halfway out, and the cop uh, shoots him twice in the gut you know, and kills him. And uh, because he was a black guy. I mean, that, 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 there's no other way to interpret that. And he was following, as you point out, National Rifle Association protocol. That's right, exactly right. He was doing exactly what the NRA says you should do if you're pulled over by a police officer. The first thing you do is inform them that you have a concealed weapon and that you have a permit. Well, let's talk about NRA's role in all of this, because they weren't always the dominant political force in America that they are today. So when and how did that change? The NRA, um, from its inception, it started out as a sportsman's organization, basically, and you know, to promote gun safety and and to advocate for, uh, in the echo of Teddy Roosevelt, to advocate for the right of hunters to to have places where they can hunt and you know, reasonable 
permit laws and things like that. Not having to do with guns, but, you know, how many ducks you can get and that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, you know, they had this uh, alliance with the Boy Scouts in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, I, that's how I first encountered the NRA was in the Boy Scouts. And uh, then in the 70s, uh, the NRA is a nonprofit organization. And uh, if you can get control of the board of a nonprofit, you can move it in any direction you want. And basically, the gun manufacturers took over the NRA's board and flipped it into a front group for very aggressive lobbying activity on behalf of the gun and weapons manufacturers. And it's been there ever since. And one of the biggest turning points for the NRA ultimately took place in 2008. And this was, you talk about this in the book, the Heller versus District of Columbia decision. So Antonin Scalia with the majority argued that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual's unlimited right to gun ownership, uh, which I think is peculiar and extraordinary. How did the NRA's work help lead to this decision? Well, they and a, and a number of other conservative groups who saw this as, as an issue that could help Republicans and less conservatives win elections em- embarked in a 20-plus year campaign to discover this individual right. And, uh, you know, the Second Amendment from certainly after the War of 1812, uh, the Second Amendment was largely ignored by American politicians and uh, historians and, and the American public. Um, just like the Third Amendment. I mean, most people don't even know that the Third Amendment says that the government can't force you to put a soldier, you know, give a soldier a bedroom in your house. The Second Amendment was equally obscure up until the 1970s, in large part because Jefferson actually succeeded during the eight years he was president from 1801 to 1809, um, succeeded in reducing the army from the 300,000 men it was when he inherited it to about 6,000 men when he left office. And he was very proud of that. But the militias had not kept up. And so when in uh, the War of 1812 started, we were not able to repel the, the Canadians and the British. And they marched all the way to D.C. and burned the White House. And that was the end of the discussion about state militias. And that was when the country decided that we needed to have a, basically a standing army. And that was the end of any discussion of the Second Amendment. And, uh, and Jefferson took a lot of heat for that. But in the 70s uh, or the 80s, you know, when the NRA decided to make this their thing, um, they started these campaigns to promote the idea that there was an individual right to own guns in the Second Amendment. A lot of it was revisionist history. A lot of it was taking historical stuff out of context, particularly the words of the founders. And Scalia did just that in the Heller decision. He, he took things massively out of context, misrepresented many of the quotes from, from founders and framers. And, and in fact, in the dissent, and I quote from the dissent at some length in the book, um, in the dissent in that case, uh, several of the other justices just basically called him out as a fraud or charlatan. Yeah, that was John Paul Stevens in particular who called him out. Yeah, and you know, and, and the whole originalism thing is a scam. I mean, when when a Supreme Court justice says, you know, I can read the minds of the founders, I know what they were thinking. That should be just as scary as when a TV preacher says, God told me I need $54 million from you to buy myself a new private jet. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you for articulating that so succinctly. So, uh, you know, one of the most interesting chapters in the book, uh, to me, is where you make a connection between neoliberal economic policies and gun violence. Can you unpack that for people a little bit? Yeah, we operated uh, under neoliberal policies from 1920 to 1932, and that brought us the Great Depression. This was the, the Harding, Coolidge, and, and Hoover administrations. 
when Harding came into office, the top tax rate was 91%. He dropped it down to 25%. There was some regular, some substantial regulation of banks and stock exchanges. He did away with all that. And, uh, it, it, and it led to this explosion called the Roaring Twenties, which did not help average working people. They actually saw their incomes go down, but the rich people got really, really rich, and that led right to the Great Crash. Then we flipped into, in 1933, with FDR, Keynesian economics, so, uh, demand-side economics, which is rational economics. It's what Adam Smith wrote about. And we held that until 1981 when Reagan took over. And then Reagan took us back to neoliberalism. Back in Harding's day, they called it horse and sparrow economics. And the, the story that they told was if you feed the horse a little extra oats, he will poop in a, a little extra undigested oats, which means that the sparrows who famously love to eat from horse poop <laughs> will find more undigested oats and you'll have fatter sparrows. The idea, of course, being the horses were rich people and the sparrows were the average working Joe. Which, of course, insinuates if you extrapolate it that poor people uh, should be eating dung, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it wouldn't fly so well today. But they, you know, they used that back in the, in the late 1800s and the early 1920s uh, as their justification. literally called horse and sparrow economics. You can Google it. And Reagan reinvented that as supply-side economics, which sounds much more sophisticated. And, uh, you know, Art Laffer came up with this BS explanation of the so-called Laffer curve on the right. back of a napkin. And, you know, for which Trump is giving him the Medal of Freedom or something like that. And he's just a totally discredited hustler. And neither Clinton nor Obama pushed back on neoliberalism. Neither one of them really worked to take us back to Keynesian economics. Um, uh, in the case of Clinton, it was because I, I think he really believes in neoliberalism. In the case of Obama, I think it's because he just never had you know, enough juice in Congress. He never had enough control of Congress to pull it off. But in any case, we are still living under Reaganomics, under neoliberal economics. And neoliberal e- economics, pretty much everywhere in the world it's been tried, always has the same outcome. The rich get fabulously rich. Working class people become the working poor. The poor become terribly poor. And the consequence of this, this, this in massive increase in inequality has been well documented by people like Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who wrote um, Why Inequality Matters and The Spirit Level, um, the first two books. Uh, they run the uh, Equality Trust out of the UK. And what they found was that um, they did a state-by-state analysis of the United States. They did a country-by-country analysis of, I think, around 60 countries around the world. And that the more unequal a state is or a country is, the higher the rates of suicide, homicide, crime, sexually transmitted diseases, teenage pregnancies, uh, school dropout, loss of social trust, lack of participation in in political activity and in community uh, activities, things like this. All of these social ills measurably come about as a consequence of high levels of inequality and high levels of inequality are not the bug, they're the feature of neoliberal economics. So as neoliberalism in the form of Reaganism has taken over the United States, we're seeing this problem of gun violence and in particular gun suicides, which are more than half of all gun deaths, um, just explode as a consequence of this. And it's a fairly predictable one. You also cite a Northwestern study from 2017 that shows school shootings increase with economic insecurity. Tell us about the correlation there. Well, you know, back to Pickett and Wilkinson's research, I'm not sure if I quoted that in the book. I think I referenced it. 
But um, one of the main things that breaks down with inequality is social cohesion, is social trust, people's belief in institutions, people's willingness to trust each other. And, and one of the things that increases substantially is, is mental illness. And those things seem to be drivers behind the school shootings. A lot of these school shootings are actually suicides where the person committing suicide thinks that they're going out in a blaze of glory. In fact, probably the majority of them. So, again, it's a predictable outcome of these massive levels of inequality. And you also point out that uh, white men have been feeling more threatened in their traditional societal roles over the last 50 years, which is when we've seen most of the mass shootings by white males. Um, In short, when white men feel disempowered, they often reach for a gun. And so bringing Trump into all of this, he's exploited white male alienation very skillfully, particularly with his narrative that immigrants are stealing white Americans' jobs. He's very much exacerbating this problem. Yes, although he's pointing to a very real thing, and I think it's one of the reasons why he's in the White House right now, is you know when he was running for president, he pointed out the fact that neoliberal economic policies embraced by both Reagan, Bush the Elder, Clinton, and Bush the Junior, and, and, and in fact embraced by, by Barack Obama, uh, these trade policies that benefit big corporations. I mean, one of the cornerstones of neoliberalism is cheap labor. In fact, we used to call it cheap labor conservatism. And if you can't get cheap labor in your country by breaking the unions, which they've done here anyway, um, you export the you know you export manufacturing to countries where labor is super cheap. Well, when manufacturing goes overseas, good jobs go away, and you've got the white middle class that had grown up during that period from 1932 or 33 until 1981. That white middle class, which was growing faster. Its wealth was growing faster, and its income as a percentage of their income was growing faster than the rich people's income and wealth was growing from that period of 33 to 81. Um, when suddenly that gets flipped and that middle class flattens, I mean, literally, the wages, individual wages, are lower now than they were in 1981. And household income is about the same as it was, but back then it was 1.3 workers per household. Now it's over 2.1 workers per household. So the net net of this is that, you know, particularly white men who have saw, seen themselves uh, historically as breadwinners, as the one who is, you know, going out there and, and bringing home the bacon, they have not been able to do that. And it, and it makes them feel emasculated. It makes them feel uh, disempowered. And, and it generally freaks them out. And that's one of the things. I think that that's probably driving more of the uh, going postal workplace shootings than it is the, the school shootings. But that's another one of the big variables, uh, which, again, we can track back to neoliberal economic policy. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes full circle there. And there are a lot of interconnections like this in the book, which, uh, by the way, I very much recommend. So let's shift over and talk about what we as progressive activists can do about the gun violence epidemic in America. So you lay out several prescriptives in the book. Uh, Tell us about some of them. Sure. Uh, number one, I think that we need to be treating semi-automatic weapons the way we treat fully automatic weapons. Uh, it's only since the late 1980s, early 1990s that even police have been carrying semi-automatic guns. Um, they are they were developed as weapons of war. They traditionally were viewed as weapons of war. And when the police shows in the 19 early 1990s, um, the gun manufacturers started providing you know, uh, semi-automatic weapons to the Hollywood producers and saying, "Here, use these." your TV shows, and suddenly cops were watching cops on TV with, you know, bang, 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 you know, semi-automatic weapons rather than a revolver. 
um, everybody wanted one. And so, and then of course they, they work their way into the criminal culture as well. Um, so that's number one. And number two, um, I, and I, oh, and there's the obvious stuff, you know, an assault weapon ban and, and uh, background checks, which is kind of conventional wisdom. Uh, so I guess number three, the, the, the thing that I thought would be probably the easiest and most sane solution is that we regulate guns the way we regulated cars. Um, back in the 1920s, you could buy a car and you could drive it anywhere with no driver's license, no insurance, no registration. And as more and more people were being killed by cars, being driven by people who didn't know what the hell they were doing, uh, we came up with a system to make sure that if somebody's going to push a couple thousand pounds of steel around at 50 miles an hour, which is lethal, that they at least know what they're doing and that there's some responsibility on the line, that there's some, you know, somebody's responsible for what happens. And so, and we can do the same thing with guns. So number one, a car is registered from the time it's made until the time it's destroyed. And every year, whoever is the registered owner of that gun or that car has to renew that registration with the state. We can do that with guns. Number two, uh, everybody who drives a car has to have uh, they have to have a driver's license. They have to prove that they know how to drive through a driving test, and they have to prove that they know what the laws are through a written test. Right. We can do the same thing with guns. In fact, this this infrastructure already exists in most states with regard to getting a license uh, to carry a concealed weapon. You have to you know do a shooting test and a written test um, and get a license with your picture on it. And then number three, in fact, in, in Texas, you can use it to vote with. And then number three, uh, the free market solution that should be embraced by every Republican um, we don't want the, you know, which is liability insurance with cars. We don't want the government. In fact, the government's not good at prospectively figuring out who's going to commit a crime. And we really don't want them doing that. We don't want the government snooping into our lives, trying to figure out if we're high risk of becoming criminals. But there is an entire industry that does that for a living. It's called the insurance industry. Sure. You want to buy life insurance? They're going to look into your past and, and, and your current lifestyle. They're going to determine what the odds are, how long you're going to live. If you want to buy health insurance, they're going to ask all about your health. If you're going to buy, um, you know, uh, car insurance, they want to know about your driving record and if you have any DUIs and things like that. Well, if you're going to buy gun insurance, liability insurance, and given that you know 40,000 people were shot in America last year, it seems like a good idea. If you're going to buy liability insurance, they're going to look at your past. And if you've got a domestic violence conviction, and that insurance instead of costing you 200 bucks a year might cost you 2,000 or 20,000. Or they may refuse to write the policy altogether, just like they won't write policies for people with multiple DUIs. That just makes sense. And that's a literally a free market or a you know, marketplace solution that uh, I would think that should be a fairly easy sale to most, most Republicans and conservatives. Well, you know, the retort from gun people, of course, would be that uh, Heller versus D.C. establishes a constitutional right to own a gun via the Second Amendment so that, that guns are not like cars. And Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution establishes Congress's obligation to appropriate money for roads. So, you know, you could say that you've got a constitutional right to drive. You've got a constitutional right to free speech, but try yelling fire in a crowded theater. Try threatening, a, you know, the president or something like that. I mean, every single one of our rights is constrained within rational limits. And so, uh, and I think this is a, an entirely rational constraint. And by the way, it's consistent with Heller. None of these, none of these things, in the opinion of the lawyers that I've read about, uh, think that Heller would make it impossible for us to regulate guns the way we regulate cars. 
So before I let you go, I do want to talk briefly about you and your background and your show. Uh, just first, I will say it is very impressive to me uh, the way that you are able to take these very large and complex ideas on a daily basis and you weave them together in a way that makes it very comprehensible for the listener. It's, it's not an easy task. Well, thank you. Thank you. My, my dad was uh, a history junkie and a political junkie and a conservative Republican and to the day he died. And he and I used to argue politics constantly. And, and when I was, uh, that was started when I was maybe 15 or 16. And we went our separate ways politically, as, largely as a result of the Vietnam War. But um, prior to that, you know, he, he I grew up, uh, he had 20,000 books in his basement. He was a book collector. And a lot of them were history books. He wanted to be a history professor. Um, when he came back from World War II, uh, he, he was in college for two years and then mom got pregnant with me and he had to drop out and go to work. And, and so he never realized that dream, but, but he certainly fired an interest in history in me. So I, I, I suppose, uh, I think to the extent that I have that skill, it's something I learned from my father and, and that I, and to which I owe, uh, my father all the credit with well, most people will know you as a, a a voice of the progressive left, but you consistently invite conservatives uh, onto your show and libertarians. And I'm wondering, is, is the purpose to keep your audience from staying in a bubble? Is it to keep yourself from that? No, not really. I mean, I, I suspect that those are side effects of it. But the main purpose is that uh, we all have... Uh, you know, crazy Uncle Ralph in the family. You know, we we all have people like that in the workplace. People who are Trump supporters, people who are you know either low information voters or malinformed voters because they watch Fox News or listen to right wing hate radio. Yeah. And we can't just write them off. We can't ignore them. We can't pretend that the guy sitting the next next to us doesn't exist, or that at Thanksgiving dinner Uncle Ralph's spouting his BS at the end of the table. Um, you know, you, you can't just like throw a knife at him or something, you know, or put tape <laughs> over his mouth. We've got to figure out how to live together, you know, how to get along. And so, yeah, I have conservatives on regularly. The problem, the biggest challenge I have is now that, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. Um, Heritage used to send us people. American Enterprise Institute used to send us people. None of these think tanks will send people to be on my show anymore because I eat their lunch. But my goal is to model basically how to win the water cooler wars, how to wake people up, and how to have that conversation with Uncle Ralph without ending up with blood on the floor. And uh, you know that's that's my principal goal in doing that. Plus, it's entertaining. I mean, you know, people slow down for fist fights and car wrecks. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, but I don't view it as gladiator stuff. It, 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 you know, although sometimes it comes across that way, I really, I really, truly want to teach people how to talk back to conservatives, and in the hopes that someday maybe one of these fools on on cable television will figure it out. And <laughs> next time some conservative blows BS at them, they'll they'll have a comeback for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, education's what it's all about. So, you know, in closing, I'll just say this is a very challenging time for a lot of progressive activists. Trump is ascendant. He operates without consequence. He works daily to undermine our government and its norms. We are, as you mentioned on the show, potentially on the verge of a world war type escalation with Iran and its various proxies. And I'll just ask you, how do you keep going? And and how do you advise activists to keep going? Well, Susan B. Anthony didn't live to see women vote. W.E.B. Du Bois didn't live to see, you know, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it, it, there's 
there's a lot of people who have been toiling in the in the vineyards of democracy for hundreds and hundreds of years who never saw the fruit of their labor. Uh, Martin Luther King never saw that day that he hoped would come. It doesn't mean that we stop. So, you know, from an activist point of view, you hold to your ideals and you just keep your head down and you keep going straight forward. From a, a national perspective, this country has been to hell and back. I mean, we had a, a revolutionary war. We fought a war against, uh, against the, the largest power in the world. Uh, we had a civil war that was the bloodiest war in our history. Six, seven hundred thousand Americans died in that war. Uh, probably actually a higher number than that, but in actual combat. And, um, you know, scarred the nation for generations. Uh, we were in World War One. We were in World War Two. We lived through the Great Depression, where uh, literally a third, more than a third of Americans didn't have a job, and 10 to 20 percent of Americans didn't have enough food. Um, uh, you know, we've, we, you know, we, we lived through several illegal wars, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, we've been to hell and back. And it seems that we always bounce back. And every time we bounce back, particularly after the major turning points, you know, the, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Great Depression, um, after every one of these major turning points, it seems like we bounce back in a way that's more progressive, that we are continuously moving forward. And I think when the next crisis, the next Great Depression-style crisis happens, which I fully expect to be in the next few years, um, that we will reinvent ourselves in a more progressive direction again. At least that's my hope. Um, you know, the, the, the cautionary tale is that in 1933, uh, Germany was suffering from the Great Depression, and so was the United States. We had FDR. They had Hitler. We went in very different directions in response to that, very different populist directions. So whoever is president, I think in particular, whoever gets elected president in 2020, possibly will be the person who's going to turn this next 80-wheel arc of history in a very substantial way, which is why this is such an important election. Well, you've given us a lot of perspective, and you have certainly indicated that there is a great deal of work to do. Tom Hartman's new book is The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, and he will be in conversation at Town Hall in Seattle on Sunday, June 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Tom Hartman, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, man. Pleasure talking to you, Seth, and thanks for having me on your program on your podcast. As Democrats focus on bench building in 2019 with city council and school board races, we are also focusing on a number of key mayoral races happening throughout the state. And so we will take a look now at the city of Renton in King County, where our friend Marcy Maxwell is running for mayor. Marcy is a former state representative from the 41st LD, and she was also Governor Inslee's senior advisor on education. Hello, Marcy. Hello, Stefan. So, you know, I, I think that those of us who know you were maybe a little disappointed thinking that you had retired from politics. So this was happy news. What made you decide to throw your hat in the ring? Well, first of all, I haven't retired from politics. I've been using my voice outside of Olympia uh, quite a bit on uh, campaigns and uh, issues. I, I should have about. said uh, retired from electoral politics. How about that? Yes. Yes, yes. So uh, with this race, you know, the mayor is retiring this year after 12 years, three terms he served. And, you know, this is a city I have served in uh, many ways. Renton was one of my cities in the 41st Legislative District. I served uh, as an eight-year school board director before that. I've had a 
business here for 30 years. I've been engaged in leadership positions with a number of different organizations here and volunteering, et cetera. And um, I think I have a very unique and useful set of skills and experiences that uh, fit well into the mayor's uh, office, and um, I'm ready to lead this city. Well, one of the things that you've said that you would like to do is to build on uh, outgoing Mayor Dennis Law's achievements. Uh, you say that he strengthened the city's finances, prioritized uh, public safety, emphasized customer service, and guided growth in Renton's neighborhoods and businesses. Um, so let's start with public safety. What are some of the areas of concern currently in Renton, and how will you address them? Well, I think with a growing population uh, and limited budgets, there's a real balance to make sure that people uh, feel safe here, that they feel safe in their homes, uh, feel safe uh, on the roads, that they feel safe uh, walking, uh, you know, through our city and using public transportation and all those things. So uh, we have a very professional police services here. I think we have great fire services here. Uh, for me, public safety is also about having clean and ample water and having uh, infrastructure that is well maintained and is, uh, you know, works for uh, the folks that live here and, and have their businesses here. So um, that's just part of the complex work that uh, makes the city run well and, and makes it attractive place to live and have your business. Well, another thing that you uh, want to address is is affordability, and we know that that's a big issue in King County. And you talk about mm-hmm. police officers and firefighters being connected to the neighborhoods that they serve. But you know, more and mm-hmm. more in King County, people in those professions just can't afford to live in those neighborhoods, and teachers as well. What can the office of the mayor do to address the issue of affordability? Well, I you know I've been in the housing business first of all for. Right. 30 plus years uh, in my own business. And I certainly have understood over the that long time period, uh, the need for affordable housing and really housing choices of all sorts, housing for our senior citizens, for our first time home buyers, renters, uh, and all of the uh, public servants that we want to live in or close to our uh, neighborhoods. And then certainly as we see growth happen here with uh, more commercial space, such as the Southport development in Renton, where we anticipate about 5,000 technology workers coming uh, over the next uh, year or two. Um, We want those folks to be able to live closer to work too. We wanna make sure that, you know, they don't have long commutes, which is not so great for family life and it's also not so great for the environment. So I think uh, looking at all of those needs together is part of the role about seeing uh, how affordability works for uh, our residents and future residents. And, you know, the city can do some things in terms of uh, helping make sure that property is available through uh, zoning and uh, through partnering uh, with, um, you know, for example, some of the faith communities when you talk about Uh, what might be available for uh, shelters and for affordable housing uh, and nonprofit uh, cooperative efforts. Um, And then uh, just, uh, you know, continuing our work. We we certainly have in our downtown locale, uh, the opportunities with some of the uh, older uh, properties to um, make sure that we have more space there for Multifamily housing, again, uh, the opportunity so that people can work and live 
uh, in close proximity. And um, I think there's a lot of effort there. The city has made some good effort at this point, And we know that with both our city and our region growing over the next uh, five, 10 and 20 years, uh, it'll be important that Renton uh, plays its role and uh, that we make sure there is housing in our community. So. Yeah, it's a holistic approach, and yeah, you're, of course absolutely. you're dealing with you know housing needs, business needs, and then you talk about the expanding workforce that's going to be coming over the next few years, uh-huh. and them being able to get efficiently to and from work. So that brings in public transportation. I know that this is something that you have also talked about on your website. What are some of the mm-hmm. ways that you would like to see public transportation expanded in the city of Renton? Yeah, I think in the city of Renton and our suburban surrounds, because we do have, you know, these problems that we're talking about really are uh, regional issues. They're the kinds of things that we need to do together with our neighboring cities. Well, sure. Renton can be something of a bedroom community to to a city like Seattle. And so that poses its own challenges, right? Well, and, you know, Renton uh, on its own for a long time has been a center of commerce with Boeing and Car here. And now, like I said, with Southport coming and we have, uh, you know, the Washington State headquarters of Kaiser Permanente is here and Sisters of the Providence. And we even have the Federal Reserve Bank of Seattle here in Renton. So as we look at all of those uh, employers and certainly much more in both large and small businesses that Uh, is here now in our city and we expect to come, we want to make sure that we have uh, many ways for people to get around. Um, And we we can't put them all on the freeway. Uh, It's, we talked about that before, how uh, it is a challenge for, you know, family life to try and have a very long commute or a challenge for the environment too, certainly to have all those uh, vehicles on the road. So public transportation is uh, an important opportunity in suburbia here, and we're part of that. Um, But it works when you have uh, good routes that serve our neighborhoods and when you have a good accessibility through timely arrival Uh, and expectations with uh, the transit service. So I think we need to do a better job of that. And uh, in order to do that, Renton needs to use its voice uh, with, um, you know, uh, King County Metro and Sound Transit and just be a a part of the leading voices uh, to make sure that those those services actually work for Renton and the uh, surrounding suburban uh, communities. You know, since you are a policy advisor to Governor Inslee on education, I, I do want to ask you about that because it's so obviously an area of mm-hmm. expertise for you. Talk about some of the needs in Renton on that front and, and what the mayor can do. Sure. Well, uh, certainly uh, in education front, we have three school districts that actually are part of Renton, the majority being the Renton School District, K-12 public schools, a little bit of Issaquah schools, and a, and a smaller amount of Kent Public School District. We also have Renton Technical College here, uh, which offers uh, great programs in training. It's a center of excellence for construction. Um, they just do really fabulous uh work with workforce preparation. And uh, some of the things that people don't know we have here in Renton, the Plumbers and Pipefitters uh, Local 32 has their apprenticeship program here. The electricians have programs here. And these things are all about making sure we have a ready workforce. Um, Our high schools uh, and our middle schools too have some introductory programs, but our high schools here in particular 
really offer some great career and technical education programs, uh, some of those in aerospace, some of them in technology and construction, to help those students determine what their interests are and to help them uh, make choices after high school if they want to go into a you know, university or a community technical college or apprenticeship program. And I think from the city standpoint, what we can do for education and workforce uh, development is we can be great partners. We can, um, you know, help the um, school district find the partners they need in industry so that, you know, they can stay up to date and they can have connections to uh, what the student preparedness needs to look like. We can, um, you know, help make sure that the students arrive at school ready to learn. You know, part of what cities need to do is make sure that um, when students come to the door, they have what they need. So they've had shelter and housing and they have, uh, you know, safe neighborhoods and walkability and clean water and, uh, and uh, parks and recreation so they can get outdoors year round and some summer programs for children in, in the parks department. There, there are many things that we can partner with and just um, really make sure that we're strong. Uh, and there's certainly using the city's voice or the mayor's voice um, to help make sure that education is funded. And, uh, you know, it's, we want our students, whether they're students in our K-12 system or whether they're adults that are, uh, you know, experiencing retraining uh, for programs in this century and jobs in this century, we, we want to make sure our, our students are prepared and can take those jobs. So your campaign is in full swing. You have a fundraising mm -hmm. event coming up. Where and mm -hmm. when and uh, what's in the itinerary for that? So on Sunday, the 23rd of June, which is coming right up, yes, it is. Uh, 6 p.m., we are having a, a Power Up for the Primaries event. And uh, it, it's fundraising, but uh, it's also fundraising, F-U-N, raising. <laughs> so uh, we want to get together, and um, I, I guess my theme uh, about uh, political campaigns and really the work we do together in advocacy is work hard, play hard. And so this evening will be a little bit of playing hard. Uh, we, we have some great guests, regional leader guests, as uh, King County Executive Dow Constantine and County Council Member Claudia Balducci, State Representatives uh, Steve Berquist and Milan Tai are co-hosting. So uh, they will be on hand. Also Pam Teal, who's on the Renton School Board. And uh, other than that, we have a good crowd coming and, and uh, we have a live band and uh, a dance floor and a photo booth and uh, just a time for us to, to play a little harder and, um, you know, get ready for the next four weeks, which are going to be very busy in this primary campaign. Yes. So an emphasis on serious fun. I will mention that the band is No Rules and uh, listeners to the yes. show will know uh, <laughs> Jim Austin. He is the front man for that band. So there you go. There's a, there's yes, a value add. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, as you say, uh, the, the primary is coming up on August 6th. Ballots drop on July 20th. So all of this is, uh, you know, of the time is of the essence here. You know, I'll just mention, <laughs> before I let you go, uh, on your website, you had somebody write in saying that they met you when you were out going door to door and that uh -huh. they were so impressed with you that they are donating and voting for you. And so you are living proof that canvassing works. It certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story. So where can people learn more? 
my website is Marcy Maxwell for Renton.net, and that's Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, Maxwell, and then for F-O-R, and then Renton. Be sure to get those two R's in there, R-E-N-T-O-N.net. And uh, you can also connect with me on my campaign Facebook page or on Instagram or on my personal Facebook page. I'm pretty accessible, and uh, I love using social media, so... Excellent. I will make sure to have links to all of that for listeners at indivisiblepodcast.org. Marcy Maxwell, thank you so much and good luck. Thank you, Stefan. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you guys missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you'd like links to the things we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, the email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our amazing associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Tom Hartman and Marcy Maxwell, and as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.